Hello and welcome to Filibustering Museology, a podcast series where we discuss what museum specialists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Joining me on this latest international adventure is Yunshun Susie Chung, an adjunct instructor and team lead for Southern New Hampshire University. Today we are heading into the frozen yet forever friendly tundra of Canada where we find Anne Davis, a museum specialist, the past president and current board member of the International Committee for Museology, a professor of museum studies, and the former director of the Nickel Arts Museum that is affiliated with the University of Calgary. In this interview, we will discuss Anne's training in museum studies, and we will talk a bit about the changes that she sees coming for museums in the 21st century. What is your name and what do you do? My name's Anne Davis. I'm retired museum person. I say museum person because I've done a whole variety of things in museums, from being an educator to being a curator to being a museum director. But I also uh, have taught fairly extensively at university. What is your academic and professional background? I have an honors bachelor degree with a double major in history and political science. And in my third year, I went to Trinity College Dublin, which was important because my undergraduate degree is from a smallish university, Bishop's University, where they didn't have any art history. But I took a course in art history at Trinity College and loved it. Then I went on to get a master's degree and then a PhD with a thesis on a Canadian topic, which at the time, and remember that this was in the Dark Ages, really it was very unusual to do a Canadian subject for one's thesis. I also have a certificate in arts administration from Harvard and a certificate of senior university management from the University of Manitoba. Your dissertation, it looks like it was the philosophy of the group of seven. Could you explain to us what the group of seven is? Certainly, for people who aren't Canadian, the the group of seven is probably the most important uh, or the best known at any rate Canadian artists. They worked from about 1910 to about 1930. They were considered quite radical then. They're sort of landscape plus artists, by which I mean some of them went on to abstraction, and they're, they're, they're still very popular today. And, and like so many artist groups, they couldn't count. There were actually 11 of them, not seven. And could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences uh, as the director of the Nickel Arts Museum? The Nickel Arts Museum is uh, the University Museum of the University of Calgary. Uh, The museum itself, like so many museums, but and certainly like university museums, uh, has a pretty varied collection. Uh, The Nichols collections are in three areas. Uh, One is fine art, mostly Canadian and mostly 20th century and contemporary Canadian art. The second area is numismatics, the uh, the 
donor nickel after whom the museum is is uh, named was a collector of coins so he gave his coin collection to the museum uh, about 16,000 of the deer things and then we also have an oriental rug collection so um, luckily we had a, a curator for each of those three areas but since it was a small museum with a small staff I did some curating as well which was fun because I love that the nickel then mostly showed exhibitions in those three areas but probably concentrating well definitely concentrating more on the art side than on the other two sides so we'd get ex we'd get traveling exhibitions as well as doing our own exhibitions as well as doing student exhibitions because the University of Calgary has a fine art faculty so that we we did student shows as well was this your first museum job after graduating with your degree, or did you work your way up from other institutions? How did you get to that position? I worked my way up. I started at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, where I was a curator of Canadian art for, for six years. Winnipeg is bang in the middle of Canada, and the gallery is a very nice institution of sort of medium size. So it's not a great big thing like a national gallery, and it's not a small little thing either. My experience in Winnipeg was was really wonderful in all sorts of ways. I was asked to do lots of exhibitions of local artists, and then national artists, and then as well I, I was asked to coordinate international exhibitions. I can assure you it, it was a pretty heady time when I was asked to curate the master paintings from the Hermitage show, complete with Rembrandt, etc., etc. It was a very exciting time. After, after Winnipeg, I came back to, to Ottawa and spent a couple of years in a government job being the heritage and museum desk for a federal government review called the Cultural Policy Review Committee. And I got to work with senior cultural people from all disciplines, from museums, from playwrights, from archivists, and, and help write the, the interim and final reports. It was, it was very exciting. And then I went to London, Ontario, where I uh, worked mostly at the university the university is now called Western University, but at the time it was called the University of Western Ontario. And there I was mostly teaching uh, art history and museum studies. So I've, I've done a lot of university teaching along the road, and it's been very exciting. I absolutely agree with the, with the quip that if you want to learn something, teach it. Yes, I, I agree with that too. You were also the Museum and Heritage Studies Coordinator for University of Calgary as well. That, that's right, Heritage Susie. Studies. Yeah, it's, it's a program that I created. I'm glad to say that the University of Calgary recognized not only your very valid concern that, that historians uh, need career options, but actually that, that museums need trained people. So... Um, 
we initiated this program again fun because it was something that that I never had that I think has has been really um, has been really exciting and were some of the courses that you created museology and heritage management as well well as, as I'm sure you know Susie in much of North America with the exception of French Canada we really don't use the term museology we use museum studies and yes a lot of a lot of or, or heritage management and uh, in fact all the courses really that I created could fit under museum studies or heritage management starting with sort of very basic principles and going right up to practica and independent work so it was great fun and I, I've particularly enjoyed the fact that many of my students now have jobs in those fields. That's wonderful. So to fit with the theme of the symposium that we're going to be holding in September, given your uh, long and varied career in museology or museum studies and working at various art museums and all of that, how have you seen museums change over the course of your career? And then looking forward, what do you think is going to happen with museums in the, over the next, say, decade or generation? Oh, wow, Rob, that's a very good question. When I first came into museums, I think that museums were, frankly, rather inward-looking and really concentrated on their collections. Nothing wrong with with having a focus on a collection, I think the collections are very important for museums. But nowadays, for me, the most exciting museums have really turned 180 degrees to using the collection to work with the visitor or work with people, such that somebody coming into a museum really has the chance to create their own museum in a whole number of ways. Now, I think that there, and, and this is very much the direction that I think museums are going to go for all sorts of reasons. One is, frankly, we can't just keep on collecting. We're running out of room, and we've got to be more judicious in what we collect and how we do it. And I think that we have to be much more collaborative. I think that we, to me, the, the most exciting museums are the ones that say to a city a few miles away, oh gosh, you have a wonderful thingamajig, and can I borrow it for my show because I, I really need a, a good thingamajig. So I think that that's very important. But to me, the business of looking toward the public looking toward the viewer, looking toward the visitor, is where museums should be going. We've been talking to other museum specialists as part of this this series of podcasts, and that, that seems to be kind of a common thread, is that the museums of the future are going to be much more, I don't know if you want to say interactive, but they're going to be more focused on the user experience. It's not necessarily the emphasis going to be on, these are our holdings 
and these take priority over everything, but now maybe we're moving into an era where the actual visiting public is also a priority, and we want to make sure that they are having a, a complete experience interacting with the exhibits, and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of effort to make that a reality and that's i mean that in some ways i guess that's self-preservation because that's going to keep the crowds coming in hopefully Um, but it's also just a recognition that the old sterile museums of the past just don't really may not have as much of a place in modern and in the in the future as it has before yep very very much in any museum project nowadays without any audience research evaluation the project uh, won't be completed so i think that it, it makes sense what Anne has just shared with us. I agree, but Susie, I also think that the nature of visitor studies has to change because this old demographic business, frankly, we've done to death. You know, we know that women who have more education come to museums more than men who have less education. We know that. So, right. so so, let's get on from there. Let's try to find out what people enjoy, what is fun, what is interesting, what they want. Not just... Right. Not just statistics. Yes, right. I completely agree. And not just what the curator thinks might be neat. You know, I as a curator think that, I don't know, the work of Lauren Harris is pretty neat. But if people aren't interested in it, no point. Don't go there. And so based on your knowledge of statistics, what do you think museums should be doing differently? I know that's going to vary from museum to museum, but in general, as much as we can extrapolate based on what you know about this stuff, what what do you think museums should be doing differently? Well, you know, some things that are pretty sort of straightforward, if you will. For instance, a museum that is open from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, is useless. Most people yes, I agree. from 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. So let's look at the hours, okay? So that's one thing, talking about stories. I've been lucky enough to work in all sorts of museums, and one of the ones that I worked in with, with great pleasure was the Singapore National Museum. It was open from 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, at the time, I suppose that makes sense from, like, the museum professional's perspective. But, yeah, from a public service perspective, that is pretty ridiculous. Exactly, exactly. And if I may, just sort of a, a, a further story for the difficulty of that particular museum, they were very proud because they just installed air conditioning. So... <laughs> You know, they were just thrilled. And they turned it on at 9 o'clock in the morning and turned it off at 5 p.m. And I told them they couldn't do that. And they were very upset because, of course, it really damages. The climate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the climate control, it, it has to be even. The up and down is the worst thing that you can do. And, and, and thinking about how humid it is in Singapore. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and another sort of simple thing that museums should do is have chairs. Absolutely. Now, yes. You know, again, I, in, in fact, I'm, I'm writing an article at the moment in which I say, I, I'm wondering if museums have eliminated their budget for chairs. Because many museums you go in, and if you can find one chair, 
per exhibition, you're lucky. And anyway, somebody else will be sitting on it by then. And many museums nowadays, they don't allow you to have a stool to actually draw or paint because of emergency issues. And I was shocked at some of those museums who had those kinds of policies. But the one um, for our ICAFON new uh, online symposium, our photo that I took of the Cleveland Museum of Art, they are a fantastic museum. They have stools that you can it, uh, fold and carry around anywhere in the galleries. Fantastic. Isn't fantastic. that fantastic? Yeah. So that kind of thing, to me, is thinking about putting the people before you think about putting, you know, whether they're going to scratch the floor or something. And I think that that kind of thing goes a long way. I think labels are another thing that I often have trouble with. For example, the museums that put on the label the acquisition number. Well, how is that going to help the public? Surely it would be a whole lot better to say a little bit uh, about the, the artifact, a little bit about the artist, you know, some, some stuff like that. One of the exhibitions that I constantly pull out was a wonderful, wonderful show of the work of Matisse called Pairs and Series at the Pompidou. And the labels there were written in non-technical language, but they didn't speak down to you. And quite often they posed questions. So you would be looking at a pair of Matisse's work and the label might say, why do you think he changed one from the other? And so it, it, it was really provocative. People in that show loved it. They stayed for hours and hours. There were benches. They sat on the benches. They talked to whomever was with them or even people that weren't with them and said, oh, I don't know. What, what was all that about? So Was this a show you worked on? No, I didn't work on it. Okay. But and another kind of a of a place that does that that sort of thing is the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg. And again, one of the concerns there obviously is to talk about race and to talk about the difficulties of race in South Africa, nay, in the whole world. And so when you're going into that museum, you are randomly given a card that will identify you as white or black. And depending on what your card says, depending on your color, you have to go in that door. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. Oh, that's really so, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, you're forced into the recognition of how arbitrary it is, how demeaning it is, and how prevalent it was. At the U.S. Holocaust Museum, they have something similar, not exactly the same, but you are first directed to an identification card as one of the Holocaust uh, victims, and yep. each identification card is different. And then you take the card and you go up the elevator to, I believe the, it was the third floor, that's where you begin. I think that that kind of acting is really good. 
Now, of course, not everybody feels comfortable doing that. And again, I think that the museums have to recognize it. But I think that involving the visitor is really, really important. And so I, I prefer involving than in, in some of the other kinds of terms that are used. You know, I, I myself am not a great fan of a whole lot of technology in a museum, mostly because, quite frankly, it often doesn't work. And then you'll have a whole bunch of kids who are collected around just randomly pushing buttons, which is meaningless. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's be a bit more imaginative, a bit more creative, and really start with an exhibition that can and must involve the visitor. Um, I wanted to ask you, in preview of the symposium, your experiences with ICAFOM as past president and your contributions. Well, ICAFOM is a fabulous committee. It's it's one of the committees where I'm I'm glad to say we have active participation from many parts of the world. ICOM itself is fairly heavily European, but in ICAFOM we have a large and active South American group. We have a large and active Asian group. We have a few Africans, not, not nearly as many as I would like, and I'm particularly pleased about your symposium because I think that it would be really wonderful to have more North Americans. So I have been lucky enough to be able to travel a lot with ICAFOM, and that's one of the one of the things that that I certainly recommend very highly. I think for any academic, any university person, it is so important to learn from others and to learn another point of view. And ICAFOM, I think, has really provided that to me. I hope, too, that what I have done in ICAFOM is to say that we respect the many differences. We recognize that museums in Asia have not certainly developed either historically or, or now the way they have in Europe. And we need to learn from each other. We need to figure out how museums in North America can learn from Asian museums, from South American museums, that sort of thing. I also think that one of the very great necessities of anybody at university is learning how to analyze and then how to communicate. I know that in ICAFOM we try very hard to communicate, but often we we don't succeed terribly well. And I think that one of the challenges is that we really have to understand that we're not just talking to people who read and write English, but people who are interested in the theory and practice of museums. And therefore, we have to make sure that we try to communicate very clearly. And perhaps that means to step back 
and try to communicate more simply. It certainly means, for example, that somebody who speaks Portuguese will write in a different way than somebody whose native language is English. So I think that it's very exciting to learn different things, to learn different methods, to become more empathetic, to have your rough points smoothed down a bit by saying, sheesh, I didn't know that. I didn't understand. Thank you for telling me. I completely agree. And one of the things that always drew me to Icafon was the fact that it has always been inclusive and there hasn't been really an elitist approach to sharing information and and collaborating as well. I'm very glad to hear that, Susie. And certainly one of the things that I tried to do was to involve younger people more. I think that often organizations tend to just sort of lump along and, and, and the membership gets older and older. Well, that's no good. You need to be constantly pushed and refreshed and steered by younger people. So I hope that ICAFOM is, is giving opportunity to younger people as well as to gray hairs. And it certainly sounds like it is. We've been talking to a lot of people lately, and it seems to be a fairly vital group of people. So I think we're, I, I'd like to think that ICAFOM is doing a pretty good job. I mean, I will say that I have no connection at all to ICAFOM. I don't think I even knew it existed before I got to know Susie. And now it's it's obviously one of those things that's on the brain now. I hear I am focusing on it all the time now. But <laughs> it, it is an interesting organization, and I am also glad that it's up and running because I think it's doing really good things. It's also, it's also interesting as an American to hear you say that that you like the idea of bringing more North Americans into it because it's one of those things where you know we're always expecting that North Americans to be there crowding other people out but it's interesting that it's kind of a European organization and there are very many North Americans there and that's that's an interesting dynamic it is and I'm not entirely sure. well I have I have some ideas as to why it is and I think one of them is the focus on theory more than practice in icofoam and I think that North Americans, quite frankly, are more focused on practice than on theory. When I taught at Texas Tech University and San Francisco State U University, they were very welcoming for me to create the course in museology, having that background. So that was very refreshing to see that they were trying to embrace both theoretical philosophical as well as the practical because you could have the practicum and also the theory. So I wish in the future that North Americans could participate more, learning more about the theory and philosophy from ICAFOM because here, you know, they learn a lot about practicum, creating an exhibit, going through project design and doing the conservation, preventive conservation, learning all about that but not a lot of museum studies courses do have a specific course on just the theory, philosophy, and history of museums. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree very much with you, Susie, and I, I'm encouraged that, that you say that at least a couple of institutions are fairly open to the theoretical side, which one would expect, or I would somewhat expect from university, but the division between, you know, the, the practical and the theoretical, at times it just becomes unbridgeable. 
Very sad. So when we're saying that a lot of people aren't focusing on methodology, by that do you mean that they're focusing too much on practical stuff like management, business type training for, you know, becoming a better fundraiser rather than being a better museum specialist? Or if if they're not doing the methodology, what do you think they're doing instead? I, I don't think, Rob, excuse me, but I don't think I said that they, they were focusing on methodology. In fact, in, in a great many ways, I think they're focusing too much on methodology. I think I said that they're not focusing on theory. Oh, okay. Then the thing that I just said, let's let's put in theory <laughs> instead of methodology. So what are they doing instead? And Well, they're doing a lot of good practical stuff. For instance, how to catalog an artifact, you know, and why do you do it and that sort of thing, which is very useful, important museum work. And there's some people who are fabulous at that kind of work you know, the registrars, and then it sort of veers a bit into the whole conservation area and stuff like that. Very important. It's important that that you know about it and have some clue how to do it and certainly have some clue how long it takes and so that if you become curator or director or whatever, you don't charge down to the registration office and say, do this in the next 20 minutes because... Probably wouldn't work well. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's very important if you want to work in a museum that you have some considerable knowledge of what each section of the museum does and why. However, to my mind, those are important things to learn, but that does not excuse a whole discussion, for example, on ethics. I think that museum ethics are nowadays just vitally important and they must be, to my mind, they must be part of a well-rounded program in museum studies. So Anne, do you have anything you'd like to recommend to us today? Well, uh, on Susie's suggestion, Kirsten Smeds and I produced or edited a book a few years ago called Visiting the Visitor an inquiry into the visitor business in museums. The book is a series of essays from Icophone people based on three years of Icophone meetings. So we decided in Icophone to spend three years looking at various aspects of visiting a museum and visitors. And out of that, we chose... I forget what it is, but something like 12 essays. One of the things that I really like about it is that some of the essays are considered very radical by museum people. For instance, Jennifer Harris's essay and Bruno's essay are, are both considered pretty radical because they do not do at all sort of the demographic stuff. In fact, really, none of none of the essays in this book does the demographic stuff much. And both Jenny and Bruno go off and suggest that the person, the visitor, is absolutely central to how we should conceive of museums and the kinds of things that we like, that we like doing in museums. And just sort of emphasize my word, like, a bit and go back to our earlier conversation about how museums have changed 
I think that for a long time, we saw museums as educational institutions. And the curator was going to teach the visitor something about something or other. And then we wanted to examine how much the visitor had learned coming out the other end of the show. Well, I think that there is something of a change of attitude. I think that we'd like to hope that the visitor definitely took something out of her experience, but it wasn't necessarily learning in the respect of, oh, I now know the seven places that Matisse painted. Well, that's nice, maybe, but maybe it's more important to say, I really got what Matisse was trying to do. I really have a new understanding of creativity. And by gum, maybe I can be more creative because of what Matisse showed me in terms of his creativity. So I think that museums, or I hope that museums, are less sort of heavy education and just tempering that quite a lot with individual learning as opposed to education, but also fun. I think that, frankly, life is not always very easy for a whole lot of people. And I think that when you have time, when you have leisure time, you want to have a good time. And I think that it, museums really need to, to recognize that. Hear, hear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, that sounds really interesting, and I'm glad to hear that people are thinking seriously about that kind of thing. So, Susie, do you have anything for us today? I was actually going to introduce that book as well, because uh, I've been using that book in my own research as well, and I think it's a very important, it has very important concepts in there and contemporary concepts on audience research, and especially in terms of what Anne was talking about is the experiential evaluation of the visitor rather than the gender, the age, the things that we always calculate. So I think that that's a fantastic foundational book in terms of visitor studies. But also I wanted to recommend where um, we've already, um, Anne has already talked about the museum um, where she has spent 20 years of her life, the Nichols Arts Museum and also the Winnipeg Art Gallery. And I already introduced what is a museum during Francois's interview. But again, um, Anne was also a part of the production of that publication. Very nice. Thank you, Susie. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Yeah, great. And I'll post the uh, links for those also. Uh, my recommendation, you you two may know this place, actually. Uh, the Toledo Museum of Art. Have either of you been to there? I have. Not, not recently, but yeah. It's an impressive place. And it's, I would never expect to find that in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> I was visiting Toledo. Yeah, for, um, I was in Toledo for family purposes, you know, 10 years ago and, or eight years ago, I guess. Anyway, we were looking to kill some time. And so we were looking for doing Google searches, basically for interesting things to do in Toledo for a couple hours. And this popped up. So we went in there and we were just blown away by the magnitude of this museum and it's free to the public. 
I was sitting here when, Anne, you were talking about the improvements that you'd like to see museums to do, and I was trying to remember, it's been a while since I've been here, but I'm trying to remember if these, if this museum satisfied those, and so I, I know that the, the labels, I remember them being fairly detailed. <laughs> the hours are, I believe, 10 to 9 every day, so they're, they're not doing the 9 to 5 thing, so that's a good thing. I don't remember the seating arrangement, though. I don't remember there being a whole lot, but I think there are a few benches scattered here and there. But, again, this was probably about eight years ago that I was there, and I, I keep meaning to get back up there, but it's about three hours away, so I just haven't gotten up there very often. But I plan to check it out again, and I'm going to run your checklist past them and see if they, they pass the oh. Ann Davis requirements yeah. for a new museum. I, I read about the Toledo Museum of Art I think two years ago in connection with their deaccessioning of the Egyptian collection. Yeah, they have a they have an exhibit going right now on Egyptian mummies. It's it sounds pretty cool. I I, I have not been there to see it and it, it only goes through the beginning of May, so I'm sure I'm gonna miss it. But the photos on the website look pretty impressive anyway. Well, I agree. I, I was blown away by the Toledo Museum. I had uh, by the breadth of the collection, by the building, uh, by the number of people there. Yes. I thought I thought it was fabulous, and I'm so glad, Rob, to hear that you want to go back because one of the things that really upsets me is when people say, "Oh, why are you going to the museum? I've been there." Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. So nothing has changed. So it's not worth returning. So. <laughs> you, you've done the whole museum and you've got everything you possibly can out of it. And anyway. Yeah, I never need to go back again. <laughs> Rob, you're lucky to have two great museums in Ohio. Yeah, I have not been to the uh, Cleveland Museum yet. I mean, I've seen the photos of it that you posted for the symposium, but I, I really want to get up there, too. I just haven't I haven't been to Cleveland in probably 12 years, but I do hope to go up there and see that one also, because those, those are some very impressive institutions. They have, they have a fantastic cafe. They have a wonderful bookstore. Um, just spacious. The environment is just friendly. Even the security staff are friendly, highly recommended. One thing that I used to do at the Nickel Arts Museum is that I would always, always give the security staff a tour of the current exhibition so that they could answer questions. Yes. That's a good idea. You know, people ask the security staff. It's usually the only staff that's around. So first people ask them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes sense they would ask them. And I'm sure some of the security folks feel like, you know, if you're at Walmart or something and you're wearing the wrong clothing and people are asking you for help, even though you don't work there, I'm Ooh. sure that some of the security guys probably feel the same way. But that's great if they have some information they can hand out. It might spice up their job a little bit, too. Yep. Rob, there was one incident at the where the security staff told one of the visitors, don't stand on one leg. <laughs> Oh. And everybody in the room just looked and <laughs> asked why. And the reason was not because she was afraid of the visitor getting hurt, but the painting getting hurt by the visitor falling on the painting because Ooh. it was probably a $3 million painting. Yeah. Yeah, well, that that's it. And to me, that's sort of analogous to the security staff saying to the kids, you know, don't talk out loud or something like that. 
I'm sorry. Why not? I know, exactly. Right. I think that museums, for a while, just got so precious. Do we have to meditate in there, or can we... Yeah. Exactly. We, we're there as a part of a very social experience with people that we came with. That yes. We should be able to talk out loud and discuss whatever is on our mind, you know, looking at the work. Yeah, or even, you know, heaven forfend, if something else is on our mind. Not exactly. Looking mm -hmm. social occasion, I think, is the right sort of attitude that I, that I hope that you want. Yeah, going back to your uh, statement about children, I mean, as the father of an eight-year-old son, it's hard enough getting him to want to go to a museum. When we get there, don't try to turn him off from it anymore. <laughs> Give him something, a reason to be right. there. Don't get mad exactly. at him for something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Anne. Not at all. I hope I hope you got I hope you got some of the things that you want, and I enjoyed it. And thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other cool things. For Susie Chung and Ann Davis, I am Rob Denning. Adios!